Good morning. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Happy Memorial Day weekend. And yeah, we remember all those who have given their lives for our freedoms. And like Paul said, we, we use those to point, to point and look to Christ who has given us freedom from, from the thing that most matters the most, uh, sin and death. Let's, uh, let's go to the, to the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for all that you've given us. I thank you especially for your Son, Jesus Christ, and the salvation we find in His name. God, we thank you for your Word. It's like honey to us, Lord. It preserves the soul. I pray that you'd be with us this morning. Hope your Word to build us so that we can glorify you and edify each other. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hopefully everybody's got the summer off to a good start. We had uh, my oldest daughter graduated, and we had a graduation party on Friday, and then I took a couple of our kids to Adventure Island on Saturday, so we kind of got this like the general thing you do in Tampa for summer, right? Go to Adventure Island. Uh, so we've had a good start to the summer. So if you see, uh, you know, this glow about me, it's not uh, holiness, it's uh, sunburn, right? It's a lack of sunscreen. That's the, the glow that's coming off of me today. <clears throat> so we're going to continue working through uh, the golden chain of salvation. Uh, Morgan started last week with election. This week we're going to talk about something called effectual calling, a calling that is effective. But before we talk about effectual calling specifically, I just kind of want to go through why is it that we need an effectual calling? Why is it that we need election the way that Morgan presented last week? Why are these things necessary? So to start with that, you have to recognize what the Bible, the way in which the Bible presents mankind, right? And it's not a very pretty picture, the way the Bible presents the state of mankind. You read in Genesis chapter 6, God says, uh, the intent of man's heart is only evil continually. He says in chapter 8, it's that way all the way from his youth. Uh, David says in Psalm uh, 51, he says, I was conceived in iniquity, was born sinful. Moses in Numbers says that our hearts are always bent toward harlotry, right? We're supposed to be in relationship with God. That was the purpose for our creation. We're always bent away from that, right? And you read some of these things, and this language is pretty strong, and we look at them and we say, well, I don't think that's true. We're not all as bad as we could be. There's plenty of people I know that are non-believers, that are good people. They help others. They, uh, they're honest. They work hard, you know. And we have to remember that everybody has been exposed to a certain degree to what is known as God's common grace, right? The Old Testament says the rain, rain is good, right? Waters the ground, grows crops, feeds your livestock, all that stuff. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. So all of humanity has had a certain degree of God's common grace operative on them their entire lives. And so that has retained a certain degree of goodness in each person. That's why everybody's not an axe murderer or a drug dealer. But the position that really probably paints clearly the position that humanity is in, with two verses to share on this subject. The first one's out of Romans chapter 3. And in Romans, the first couple chapters of Romans, they're not very encouraging. They get really encouraging as you go through, but the first couple aren't very pretty. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says this in verse 11. He says, 
There is none who seeks after God. And that pretty sums up, that pretty much sums up the, the willful intent of the heart apart from God. Nobody wants God. Nobody's looking for God. Nobody wants to be in a relationship with Him. We have all turned away and are willingly pursuing something else. Think about if you're a parent, you have a child, you raise them up, they get to be 18, they move out and they say, I'm done with you. I'm never talking to you again. I'm not going to call you. I'm not going to write you. I'm not going to visit you. That's the position that mankind is in toward God. Everybody has willingly turned away from God and from relationship with Him. Another verse that also gives some clarity to the subject comes out of the book of Jeremiah, chapter 13. Jeremiah says this, chapter 13, verse 23, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. Can somebody change the color of their skin? No, they can't. Can a leopard change the fact that it's got spots on it? No, it can't. All of us have willingly turned from God, are willingly pursuing something that is not God, and no one is capable of turning around. That's the situation that humanity is in. That's why God uses these things like election and effectual calling and these other doctrines that uh, Morgan and others will be talking about over these next couple of weeks. We're all in a position where we've turned from Him, we willingly turn from Him, and we are incapable of coming back to Him. So think about... <clears throat> couple of pictures of this. If you've seen the movie Terminator, right? You've probably seen the Terminator series. A lot of you probably have. Go all the way back to the first one. Came out back in the 80s. Arnold Schwarzenegger's a Terminator. He is sent to go and kill Sarah Connor. Sarah Connor is the mother of John Connor. John Connor would later become the leader of the resistance against the machines, right? Kind of, uh, you know, mechanical uh, apocalypse, right? It's going to happen. John Connor is going to be the leader of the opposition against the machines. So the Terminator is sent back in time to take out his mother because he is completely opposed to John Connor. There is nothing that is outside the Terminator that will change him in that fashion. There's nothing inside the Terminator that will change him in that fashion. He is completely and utterly incapable of changing his mission and taking out John Connor. But of course, there's some differences here, right? The Terminator is a machine, right? We're not machines. We're not robots. You're not a robot as a sinner. You can sin any way you want to. You're not a robot as a Christian. You can follow Christ in any way that you want to, right? So we're not just like the Terminator. We're also like my oldest son, Jack, right? Jack hates peanut butter. Hates it. When he was little, he would say, I do not like the peanut butter. I do not like it. He hates peanut butter. I can make a peanut butter sandwich and put it in front of him, and 10 times out of 10, he's going to say, no, I don't want it. I could probably offer to pay him money. Here's 100 bucks, Jack. Eat the peanut butter, and he won't eat it. His desire and his will is opposed to peanut butter. He freely chooses not to eat the peanut butter. That's where we are. All of us have freely turned away from God, and we are stuck in that. We are incapable of changing our situation on our own. That's where we are. So that's, that's a problem, right? It's a problem that we can't come back to God. It's obviously a problem for us. It's also a problem for God. God's loving and gracious. He wants to give grace and love and mercy to His people. 
but he can't because we're not coming to him, right? It'd be kind of like a principal at a graduation, an high school graduation, that's got the diploma for a student, but the student won't come to graduation. Well, I wanted to give it to you, but you ain't here. You didn't want to come to it, right? So God has to do something in order to be able to give the diploma to the student to show his grace and mercy to his children. And of course, he sends his son Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross, bears the penalty for all man's sin. <clears throat> sin is, is reckoned with. And then he sends the gospel out. Billy Graham goes uh, to Tampa Stadium and preaches to tens of thousands of people. Preachers go all different places and share the gospel in different places. Uh, there's a friend of mine, his name's Fred Felton. He actually played uh, for the Pittsburgh Pirates uh, back in the 80s and 90s. Now he's an evangelist and he kind of travels across Florida and he goes to Africa and South America and different places and shares the gospel with people. And it's funny, he, uh, before he preaches in a new place, he'll take his phone, take a picture of his feet, and then he'll post it to Facebook and say, hashtag, blessed feet. I mean, you go read Romans, uh, Paul says, how are they going to hear without a preacher? Who's going to preach unless he's sent? How beautiful are the feet of those that carry good news? He says, hashtag, blessed feet. My feet are blessed. I'm sharing the gospel. Right? So my friend goes and preaches the gospel. Billy Graham goes and preaches in Tampa Stadium to tens of thousands of people. But we still have a problem, right? We still have everyone in a situation where they are antagonistic to the gospel. We're enemies of Christ. We're not neutral. That's the way the Bible presents us. We're not neutral in this kind of struggle uh, you know, between God and the fallen world. We are enemies. We are on the wrong side. Left to ourselves, nobody is going to come down at Tampa Stadium and receive Christ at Billy Graham's uh, at the at the stage at Billy where the Billy Graham's preaching on. Right? Nobody's going to come down there. So this leads this leads theologians to kind of differentiate between what you would call the gospel call or the general call and the effectual call. Now I'm going to read something out of Westminster Confession of Faith on the effectual call, just as a, for a thing of clarity. If you've ever read the confession, the confession is not Scripture. Uh, it is subject to Scripture. Uh, but it gives a good summation of the doctrine that's found in Scripture. So this comes out of the confession. It says, All those whom God hath predestined unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit, out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ." Yet so, as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. This is effectual calling. So the gospel call goes out. Fred Felton goes out and preaches. Billy Graham goes out and preaches. Preachers go wherever they go and they preach the gospel. The general gospel call. And whomsoever will, will come and repent, the offer is freely there. But nobody will do it because nobody wants God. Everybody is, is antagonistic to the gospel. So God sends His Spirit and works upon the heart of those to whom He has chosen. 
think of the concept of being born again, right? Born again, uh, you're not born, you're born once according to the flesh. You're born again in the Spirit. God comes in and regenerates you. So I'm going to read a verse out of Romans, which I think brings some clarity to this. Romans chapter 8. And Morgan read this last, this last week. He read 29 and 30, and this kind of gives a summation of what you would call the, the golden chain of salvation. <clears throat> We're just going to read 30. And it says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. It's a great verse. It's all written in past tense because everything that is necessary for our salvation has been accomplished according to God's work. Praise God. I don't have to tremble that he's going to strike me down and throw me away. He's already accomplished my salvation for me. Thank God. But now look at this verse, the last term there. He says, these he also glorified. Glorification is going to be amazing the day that it comes. Eye has not seen and ear has not heard and thought has not entered the heart of man those things that he has prepared for his people. It's going to be amazing. Glorified bodies, you won't get sunburned anymore probably. It's going to be great, right? But you take that. Those who have been glorified. You know, there's not any major Christian denominations. Catholic, Presbyterian, Baptist, Pentecostal. There's a whole bunch of other ones. There are no major Christian denominations that would say everybody's going to be glorified. Because it's very clear in Scripture that everybody's not going to be. It's sad, but it's a fact. It's a sad fact. Not everyone is glorified. So you take that and you say, okay, well, there's this group that is glorified. And you go backwards. You go backwards to justified, right? Well, that means that not everybody's justified. Because if you're justified, you're going to get glorified. So if only some people are glorified, then obviously only some people are justified. Well, you move back from that, and what do you get to? You get to called. If you're called, <clears throat> you're justified. Well, if not everybody's justified, then not everybody are called. This is what he says is the effectual call. There's the general gospel call. The preacher goes out and reads Romans Road and says, come and repent at the foot of the cross because Jesus shed his blood for you. But unless the Spirit does something to our hearts, we will not turn around and repent. We won't. Another way that it's described, you see this in Scripture, uh, several different places, is the concept of a heart of stone becoming a heart of flesh. And flesh in this sense is a good sense. Not Sometimes flesh is used uh, talking about sin in Scripture. He's just talking about flesh as opposed to stone, the contrast there, right? So you have a heart of stone. That's what we all have originally, a heart of stone. What does stone do? Stone does nothing. It's cold. It's inanimate. It doesn't support life. It cannot do anything other than be acted upon. Stone can't do anything of itself. You can pick a stone up and throw it, but it's not going to do anything. You can't say, hey, come here, Stoney. Come on, Stoney. It's not coming, right? That's where we are as humanity apart from Christ. We have hearts of stone that won't respond to him. He takes that stone and he changes it into a heart of flesh. And flesh, a heart of flesh does what? It pumps. It supports life. It's living, right? It's warm, just like a heart that's working properly in a, in a human su supports and sustains life. Nobody gave that heart that, that ability on its own. That's what God put into you. So spiritually, God puts a spiritual heart into you, which also sustains life. 
And this is, again, the concept of being born again. If you go to, you go to John chapter 3, and you ever read through that whole scenario there, uh, Jesus is coming. <clears throat> he's talking to Nicodemus in the evening. Nicodemus uh, comes to Jesus at night, and he's embarrassed. He doesn't want to uh, come and talk to Jesus during the day because Jesus is kind of this controversial figure, right? So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, uh, uh, you know, so tell me, Jesus, what's all this thing about? And Jesus says, I'm telling you, you're not going to see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And Nicodemus says, uh, well, what does that mean? Can a man climb back into his mother's womb when he's old? And Jesus is like, no, you're not getting this. You're the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand this? Man, i got a lot of explaining to do. He's not talking about your physical body. He's talking about spiritually. You will be spiritually born again. That's where the phrase comes from, right? You're born again spiritually. The Spirit does it, acts upon your heart, and changes you from someone who is a stone and changes you into a heart of flesh, right? One that supports life and one that desires a heart. You could probably say a heart desires to pump, right? Well, God changes our spiritual hearts to something that has a desire for Him. You you think back to the Terminator, right? So the Terminator, in the first movie, he is completely set in an antagonistic fashion to John Connor. But then the second Terminator comes out. I remember watching this when I was a kid. And this story begins, and Terminator shows up again. Now John Connor is like 12 years old or something, and the beginning of the movie comes, and Terminator shows up, and he's you know chasing John Connor. And then a couple minutes into the movie, you see him all of a sudden protect John Connor. I remember seeing that for the first time. I'm like, wow, plot twist, what happened? Now the Terminator is protecting John Connor. Well, what happened to the Terminator between Terminator 1 and Terminator 2? Well, sometime in the future, John Connor, the adult John Connor, changes the Terminator's mission so that he now comes and he's now completely and fully, without capability of being removed, now he's completely and fully on John Connor's side. He was incapable of changing himself from being against John Connor in the first one because of John Connor's actions. Now the Terminator is completely on John Connor's team and he will, he's incapable of changing that, right? Same thing with Jack, right? Think about Jack and his concept of peanut butter. He hates peanut butter. Let's just say that uh, I said, Tracy, we're not eating anything but peanut butter for the next week. Nothing. That's it. And for whatever reason, she did it, right? So we eat peanut butter three meals a day. Jack probably won't eat any peanut butter the first day. He might not eat any peanut butter the second day, but probably by the third day, he's going to eat it. He's going to eat it because I have worked a situation which has now created a desire for peanut butter in his heart, right? My actions have done something to his will and his desire, which now he freely comes and eats the peanut butter. This is what God does through effectual calling. He comes inside of us and he changes us so that we now desire to come to him. That becomes our desire. We are completely antagonistically opposed to him prior to him coming in. Once he's come in, he makes us change our desires so that we have one for him. A couple of verses out of the book of John, which brings some clarity to this. John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Then he walks on water. Then the next day, after he feeds the 5,000, a whole big group of people come showing up to see what he's doing again. And, uh, hey, we, we were looking for you. We couldn't find you. And Jesus says, you were looking for me, not because you wanted to hear what I say. You were looking for me because I fed you. That's why you were looking for me, right? But he says, don't labor for this food which perishes. Labor instead for the food which doesn't. And he goes on to talk about himself as the bread of life. He is what sustains life. 
So John chapter 6, verse 44, he says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. No one can come to me. You know, Jesus is not a bouncer, right? He's not like at the club with the velvet rope out saying, nope, can't come in. We're full. Sorry. No one is able to come to God unless God does something first. If God doesn't work upon your heart first, you won't come to him. I won't come to him. None of us will come to him if he hasn't done something to us first. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then you move back up to verse 37 in that same chapter. Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So nobody is capable, nobody is willing to come to God apart from his work upon your heart. And if he works upon your heart, you're going to come to him because your desires have been changed. You now want to him. You now want to come to him. Nobody comes unless he draws you. If he draws you, you're coming. You can take it to the bank. This is what people mean by the concept of effectual calling. God calls your heart through the spirit, through the application of his word, and then you're going to come because now you're a new creation. You're not what you were before. Praise God for that. So what do we do with these kind of concepts? What do we do with, you know, what Morgan talked about last week uh, with election, with effectual calling, some of the other things we'll talk about here in the next uh, coming up weeks? What do we do with those? Well, for one thing, it should be an encouragement. It should be an assurance for us in our service to Him. You know, one of the, at the beginning of the beginning of the service, one of the songs, the first song, I think that uh, Paul was singing. One of the lines in there it says, "Fear will come, but it will leave." Right? It's going to happen. Right? You're going to be afraid. You're going to be uncomfortable. Uh, situations aren't always going to be what you think they're going to be. But you know what? It's going away because God is sovereign. God's going to carry His will through. Right? Fear will come, but fear will leave. We can be encouraged and have confidence. In God's work through the church. So think about, uh, think about we went through Joshua uh, a couple months ago. <clears throat> the conquest was a job that was allocated to the entire nation. It wasn't just the soldiers fighting the battle. Everybody in the nation had some role to play in carrying out the conquest of the land of Canaan, right? The church is exactly the same. Everybody in the church has some role to play in the Great Commission in preaching the gospel and making disciples and baptizing people in Jesus' name. Everybody has some role to play in that, right? How are they going to hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How are they going to hear without a preacher? How is he going to preach unless somebody sends him, right? How beautiful the feet of, of those who bring good news. Everybody has a role to play in that. But what we can do is we can take confidence and be encouraged in the fact that, yeah, our role is going to have some significance. Something I do for the kingdom is going to have fruit. Why? Because God has guaranteed that it will. Because it's God that goes out and does the work. It's not me that does the work. It's not you that does the work. It is God who's doing the work. We can trust and have confidence in that. And you know, you think about the way uh, maybe we have conversations with our neighbors or people at school or people at work or people we don't know really well. And sometimes we think, well, you know, it's kind of uncomfortable, you know, to talk about Jesus, you know, in the workplace. You know, I don't want to I don't, want pe- I don't want to be that person, you know, like, oh, that's the Jesus guy over there, um, or with your friends. 
and we think, this is kind of an uncomfortable thing. I don't know that I want to come and step to this person. Uh, what if this person, this is a pretty smart individual, what if they have some arguments against Christianity uh, that I don't know how to respond to? You don't need to worry about that. Because it's not you that's sharing the gospel anyway. You're being obedient and submissive to what God has called us to do. But it's not you that's doing the work. It's not you that brings the fruit, right? Paul says, I watered and Apollos uh, plowed the ground, but God is the one who brings the increase. It's God that is working on that other person's heart. It's not you. So we can have trust and confidence that our labor for the kingdom is going to be effective. There's going to be fruit that comes out of it. Praise God for that. But there's another thing that I think, particularly for me, this magnifies the love of God. You know, I mean, as we read through some of these things, you read about election and predestination and effectual calling and some of these other things. These are, these are topics that uh, some people get, uh, get offended at or some people don't like. They're, at the face value, sometimes we think, well, that's not a very nice doctrine. I don't really like that. <clears throat> I've talked to people who have said, well, this makes God a monster. This makes God, uh, God's a hateful God if, he, if, this is, if this stuff is true. And I would tell you, so I'm a Calvinist, right? I mean, that's what uh, the PCA is. Uh, we're Calvinists in our doctrine. That just means we believe in predestination, right? And all of the doctrines that stem from that. I wasn't always that way. I wasn't always that way, not because I was opposed to it necessarily, but because I'd never really read it. And as I've read through it, some of these doctrines concerning election and the way that God works in the people, works in the hearts of his people, they're about as clear as it gets in the New Testament, I've come to believe that this concept, uh, this concept of salvation, not necessarily because I wanted it to be true, but because you can't deny it. It's really almost as clear as it gets. But you think about the way people come and talk to God about God. You're, uh, you're a monster. You're hateful. How can you walk through things like this? And I think this is not paint God as a monster. It paints God as someone who's a loving parent. I mean, think about, think about this. And I know this doesn't answer all of our questions on these doctrines. All of our questions on these doctrines will never be answered, at least not down here, and probably not in heaven either. There's probably always going to be an element of God that is beyond our understanding because he's that great. But think about a parent who's in the garage, cleaning the garage, working on something, and they've got a three-year-old in the driveway, and they say, don't go out in the street. It's dangerous. Stay in the driveway and make sure you don't get out in the street now, right? And they go back to doing what they're doing in the garage. But the kid's three. What's the kid going to do? He's forgot all that already. He's playing with his ball. He's playing with whatever. The ball rolls out into the street, and the kid runs out into the street, not paying attention to anything else but his ball that he's just lost, right? The exact same time, there's a car that's coming down the road, and the driver isn't paying attention to anything else He's texting on his phone at the same time, driving through a neighborhood, looking at the phone. He's not paying attention. The kid's not paying attention. <clears throat> Unless somebody does something, uh, it's going to be bad, right? The kid's going to get run over. So a parent who stands in a driveway and sees this happening and says, oh, wait, get out of the road. Get out of the road. Don't stay. Get out of the road. But then just stands there and says, well, I told him. I gave him a warning. I told him not to get in the street. I came down and I said, hey, get out of the road. I made sure that he, that he heard me, right? Hey, get out of the road. A parent who stands there and doesn't respond when his incapable child, an unwilling child, is in the road is not a good parent. We would look at that parent and say, well, 
you might need to go to jail or maybe get Baker acted or something. The position that all mankind is in, the position that I'm in, the position that everybody else in here is in is of a three-year-old in the street that is unwilling and incapable of coming to God. They're not, we're not turning around. But God is a loving Father. And God comes out into the street and He picks us up despite the fact that we're not coming back to Him anyway. And He's picked us up and He's brought us to safety. That is what God has done. And I know that these things, again, all our, all our questions on these subjects will never be answered. Definitely not down here. But that's the picture of God as presented in this. You're not coming to God. I'm not coming to God. And you know what? We're doomed for not coming to God. But God has graciously and mercifully come down and scooped us up out of the, tr- out of the street and brought us to salvation. I think if my prayer, honestly, if, if we don't get anything else out of the rest of these sermons we're going through, and hopefully we get a lot out of it. But if we don't get anything else out of the rest of these sermons and these topics that we talk about, I pray that at least our understanding of God as a loving Father is magnified through some of these things. So we can look at Him as someone who loves us and is willing to overcome anything, any obstacle to bring us to Him. We can be encouraged because our labor will be fruitful. It will be because He is working through us. And we can rejoice in that, that He's going to continue to expand His kingdom through our efforts, despite the fact that we're not worthy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.